this week on Life and Faith. I don't like work-life balance. I think that it implies that work is a different thing from life. And I think that if we're doing work right, it's a part of life. The really crucial step in science is to get good ideas going in the first place. The fact that I was hanging around ashrams doing goat bleating was indicating that something was missing. She'd be certainly the first one to listen to the podcast. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart and I'm recording this in lockdown, working from home, a situation many of us have become very experienced in over the past year and a half. And that experience has made even pointier some perennial questions around busyness, productivity, work-life balance and the sneaking suspicion that technology is taking over our lives. What does a healthy, balanced life look like in a digital age? Today on Life and Faith, we'll be thinking about well-being in a range of areas in our lives. We'll hear from Dr. Jenny George, who's CEO of the corporate mental health provider Converge International, and also Daniel C., whose passion is to help busy people make space in their lives. Natasha Moore spoke with him. My name's Daniel C and I am a business owner of a company called Spacemaker. We do productivity training and coaching for leaders around Australia. I'm also a bivocational church pastor and author of a new book called Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind and Think Clearly in the Digital Age. You sound busy then. Um, I am busy. I also much? have three wonderful oh, children. Yep. Uh, I have 20 chickens. I live, in communi- I, I live in community, so I share those chickens with another family who we share land with. Uh, so, yes, I certainly have a lot on my plate right now. Yes. Okay. So, your life is quite full, but you're, you've written a book about making space in your life. How much space is there in your life? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, look, it's funny. People ask me about that. And I think the reason I'm so passionate about space and helping busy people make space is because I wrestle with it myself. Uh, I think a guy called Richard Buck, who's an American author, once said that we teach best what we most need to learn. And I've definitely wrestled with overwork and being stressed. I had a burnout or a near burnout about a decade ago. And through that process, I've built in rhythms and practices in my life that have really worked to give me the space I need to do what I really value. And and it's also helped me to train and coach other leaders, executives, busy people, working parents, professionals to actually implement similar habits and enjoy a bit more space in their busy lives as well. So a lot of us are kind of, we feel constantly busy and exhausted. We've got overflowing inboxes. We're addicted to our devices What's wrong with us? Like, are we doing this wrong? Can you kind of diagnose what the problem is here? Yeah. So look, originally years ago, I started an ebook, and I thought I'll just give people some tips and tricks to turn off their phone on the weekend occasionally. Uh, maybe don't start with the phone at the beginning of the day and the end of the day and, and a few habits to unplug and rest uh, away from the digital age. And in my own life, I realized just how difficult some of those simple habits were. And I realized how difficult it was for other people to implement them as well. And so I've come to the conclusion that actually we need more than simple tips and tricks. We actually need to deeply rethink our relationship with the online world and to reframe our paradigm 
and the way in which we intrinsically and personally relate to digital technology, philosophically, uh, spiritually, mentally, addictively, in order to actually make the simple shifts that we need to make to enjoy a bit more space. So if someone comes to you, if you have a client who comes and says, oh, I just need to be more productive with my time, I'm frittering it away, my inbox is, you know, a disaster, help me work through that, what are you going to do with them? Is it just, you know, here's some ways to manage your email? How do you bring in those bigger framework things? Yeah, so look, I used to be a physiotherapist. So again, I realized that diagnosis is like three quarters of the solution. Uh, so just like a physio, it's probably just my background. I would ask a lot of questions. I'd look at their inbox, I'd look at their to-do list, I'd look at their calendar. I'd have a bit of a sense of where their pain points are and how they work generally. And also the organization they're in because we're all shaped by uh, cultural pressures and by our own teams. And so I try to work out where the productivity issues are to start with. And what I've noticed is there's kind of two ends of the spectrum, which I actually talk about as an inverted U-curve, like you imagine an upside down curve. So a little bit of technology increases your productivity. There's no doubt about that. We definitely need to use email well, use calendars, uh, have apps, have tools, be on the net. Uh, and there are people who lack tech skills and tech savvy. And for them, I'll, I'll help them. Yeah, this is how you set up your email inbox, how you get an action folder, a reading folder, how to get to zero every day. Uh, you should set up an online to-do list. This is how you should integrate your calendars, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so a bit more technology will make them a lot more productive. But then you have a whole lot of other people on the other side of the curve uh, where they've used more and more tech and not only has the curve plateaued where more tech doesn't mean more outcomes, they actually end up, what I say, sliding down the right-hand side of the inverted U-curve and actually entering what I call digital overuse. And so they're constantly busy, they're wired, they're tired, they're distracted. They feel like they're doing more than they've ever done before, but they're not achieving better outcomes. You know, they reach for their phone first thing in the morning, last thing at night, and they just feel like they're always connected, even when they're not at work. And uh, for this increasingly large cohort of society, then my solution is you need to actually make space. That rather than simply learn more tech habits, the way to become productive is actually by unplugging in a habitual and specific way to set life-giving limits on how often you're online so that when you use tech, you use it well. And when you're not using tech, you experience the richness and fullness of life that happens when we think and rest and relate outside of a screen. And so, yeah, the solution is less tech to be more productive. Mm. And, and sometimes people need both. Just a little thing in there. I, I noticed you casually mentioned the importance of Inbox Zero. Are you a big like, of course, you should have Inbox Zero. Your life is a mess if you don't. Well, I'm a big Inbox Zero fan. Uh, we have a course called Email Ninja. Uh, it's a crazy name. We had too many drinks one night and it came out. But uh, <laughs> it's basically how do you think about your inbox like a letterbox and how do you actually create a pattern in your life where when you do email, you do it really well, you process to zero and you work on your actions and then turn off your email programs, turn off your notifications and actually disconnect so that you're not constantly on. And the outcomes have been fantastic of that, that methodology. Oh, I feel like I need that in my life. <laughs> Daniel's book, Spacemaker, offers some big framework ideas for how we approach technology in our lives, some broad principles for flourishing in a digital age, and also some very specific practices we can adopt to make that happen. Things like sitting down at the start of the year and putting your holidays in the calendar first before you commit to other things. I like the sound of that. He also talks about the power of something called the daily pause. 
It came out of a bunch of research studies that I read from the US, which just seemed amazing to me. And the researchers were trying to help people simply sit in a room by themselves with no technology and no distraction and to think about their own thoughts. And they wanted to assess how people found that. And they found that people generally didn't like sitting by themselves, thinking about their own thoughts for six to 15 minutes. And the studies changed and they tried to find different conditions. And eventually they came up with this crazy experiment where they electrocuted, they, they gave people an electric shock that was so painful that the participants would pay money not to be shocked again. And then they put them in the room and they said, just sit and think your own thoughts with no distraction and no technology. But if you really want to, you can give yourself another electric shock. And remarkably, 67% of men and 25% of women actually chose to shock themselves rather than ideate. And when I read that, I just thought we are a culture that is losing our capacity to sit uh, on the toilet and not have the phone or sit and just be at the dinner table or, or be near the kids and not suddenly grab the phone and look at the news. And so I realized that the daily pause is one of those practices we actually need to recover to retrain ourselves to think our own thoughts and not simply other people's thoughts and to learn to enjoy a bit of stillness and peace and quiet. And so there's a bunch of small, simple habits. Uh, some of the simple ones are um, charge your phone outside of your bedroom. Uh, there's a, an amazing study that said 80% of young people use their phone at night when their parents think they're asleep and 10% of young people check their phone more than 10 times throughout the night. So if you've got young people, it's a great thing to get everyone to charge their phones outside of the bedroom, including yourself. And that just means you have a daily pause before you go to bed where you're not finishing with you know, Candy Crush or Instagram and you can reflect on the day or have a conversation with your partner. And it means you can wake up in the morning and think your own thoughts rather than listen to the pandemic. And that's a really good little daily pause Another one is making sure that you have maybe half an hour or an hour together if you live with others, let's say as a family, to have an hour for dinner every single day eating around a table without a phone. Put all the phones away and make it a screen-free meal. And the research around that is extraordinary. 12-year-old uh, girls who eat with their family on a regular basis without devices end up with better university scores, less debt, uh, they're less likely to smoke marijuana, less likely to be pregnant at the age of 17. Uh, there's other studies that show that numeracy and literacy increase significantly for younger people who eat regularly around a table. Uh, and the amazing thing is that it doesn't matter what you feed them. Uh, you can go all out and feed them like organic broccolini, you know, or you can just get frozen pizza that costs $2 from Woolworths and it doesn't matter from a research point of view. It's about the relationship with people you care about on a regular basis and having conversations. And one of the daily pause habits is also to have a few questions up your sleeve to facilitate those conversations. And my favorite is the high-low buffalo. So you just say, what's your high from today? What's your low? And what's a buffalo? Something random or strange or funny that happened. And all you need is maybe one question and no phones and you can have an amazing conversation that actually improves your relationships with your family and energizes yourself as well. Another practice that's deceptively simple but can have a dramatic impact is the Sabbath, a weekly pause that emerges out of the Jewish and then Christian tradition. For a growing number of people today, whether they're religious or not, that looks like taking a digital Sabbath. Most of us just think rest will happen as a byproduct of just not working, and yet I don't think that's true. I actually think we need to create a ritual that helps us move from work mode to rest mode. Uh, I think there's value in actually 
specifically having a day where we rest, where we work out what is work and therefore what is not work and where we orientate together, you know, with others we live with and navigate a day where we're intentionally just slowing down and being still. That doesn't mean just sitting around reading books and doing nothing. I mean, for me, digital technology, so being on a screen and swiping and typing and communicating, that's what I do for work. Therefore, I chainsaw and I bike ride and I play board games and I eat fish and chips when I'm having my day off. And part of that involves turning off my screen for a day a week because my brain can't tell the difference between Instagram and Outlook. When I'm typing and swiping or communicating or using the internet on my so-called day off, my brain neurologically isn't getting a rest. And I've noticed a huge difference uh, when I actually learned to live a different pattern on my day a week. So yeah, to answer your question, I, I think there's great value in the Sabbath. I'm hearing more and more leaders from different traditions actually saying we need to go back to the Sabbath and we need to actually create a pattern of real rest in a culture that never turns off. That's something we can offer, I think, our culture at wide, but we actually need to learn it again in the church. You know, I'm speaking to you, I'm in lockdown in Sydney currently, and, you know, we haven't really had a significant lockdown since the first one last year. Um, at which point, you know, I'm kind of one of those people who's a massive introvert and believes that the best plans are cancelled plans. And for me, in a lot of ways, the first lockdown was kind of like, oh, it's so nice to not be busy. I think a lot of people had this experience of, oh, maybe we don't have to go back to the way things were. Maybe I can make choices that mean that my life can have more space. But of course, easier said than done, because there are so many pressures and you know, like if you're living in a culture where everyone's busy, you know, you quote someone in the book that busy is a choice, but doesn't mm -hmm. really feel like a choice. It feels like this kind of thing you're trapped on. So how do we choose against busy? Yeah, it's a hard question, isn't it? And there's definitely the reality that there are times where there are just too many things we need to achieve and we just have to put our head down and make sure it happens. Uh, for me, lockdown wasn't remotely relaxing. I had so many commitments that I had to work through and it was just really hard to survive with my kids at home doing homeschooling as well. So it was different for everyone. But I still think busy is a choice. Firstly, I think on a big level, we do make choices that shape how busy we are. Uh, a lot of those choices relate to consumption actually and the choices we make regarding money and career. And I think those choices are really hard sometimes to buy a smaller house or not do the renovation or not get the nice car and keep the old car so that you have less pressure to fill up your life with that next job uh, or the pressure to go up the career ladder simply because you're looking up rather than thinking about whether your ladder's on the right wall altogether, as Stephen Covey says. So there's those broader choices that shape the context we live in. Uh, but then I even think, think day to day just the ability for us to, again, make space and take a bit of time out to reflect on what really matters just allows us to either reshape our mind so that we enter a task that we have to do by saying we get to do it rather than have to do it, for example, you know, or uh, we see the beauty in the small things or the small moments we can experience rather than wanting to electrocute ourselves <laughs> in those moments. Uh, and I think the beautiful thing about what I love about space is you don't need a lot of it. You don't need a lot of space to experience a dramatically different life if you can just pause and breathe occasionally, if you can stop and pay attention 
to your kids who need that attention or pay attention to that, I don't know, the sunset that's outside which you're not looking at because you're swiping your phone. You know, if you can just pause and enjoy the meal that you're enjoying or simply plan your week rather than just diving in and looking at whatever comes in by email, you know, those little pauses in the day actually can give us that sense of being unbusy even if we have a whirlwind around us in the meantime. And it gives us that perspective that actually we'll never get everything done, we'll never read everything we can do, we'll never you know, be the perfect mom or perfect dad or get through every episode of Netflix that we want to watch. It'll never happen in the digital age. And so that pausing allows us to say, I'm enough, and it's enough, and mess is okay. Let's enjoy today. Life and Faith, and Natasha has been speaking with Daniel C. about making space in our busy, extremely online lives. Now, for most of us, how we relate to our devices has a lot to do with how we relate to our work, and both have a big impact on our mental health. For this piece of the puzzle, that is well-being at work, I wanted to hear from Dr. Jenny George. She's the CEO of Converge International. We're a company that provides mental health services and a whole lot more to companies in Australia. So we don't usually provide services direct to a person, or they're not at least the person who comes up and and, um, asks us for help. Rather, they come via their employer who contracts for our services. And that might be a person who goes into the workplace and is around for you to talk to. It might be coming for counselling, or it might be the services we provide with things like helping with a wellbeing strategy or doing some mediation in the workplace as well. Now, you've been doing this for a little while. Does it work? Are you able to confidently talk about how these kinds of programs can really help people? They do work. So we ask everyone at the end of the sessions that they have whether or not they think that their issues have been resolved. And more than 80% say they have, which is brilliant. Mm. So that's a really, really good thing to know because um, obviously every single person we help, we want them to get a good outcome. The other thing that we know from a company point of view is that for every dollar they spend, it saves them between three and $5 in lost time through absences um, or through someone just not being as productive uh, day to day as they could be. So who, what's the motivation here? Is it to help people or is it to be more productive in the workplace? Well, the reason I love this job is because it can be both. <laughs> and I genuinely <laughs> love the fact that on the one hand, we're helping people and measurably making a difference in their lives and their relationships. Yeah. And at the same time, we're also helping workplaces. And I actually think being productive means that people are flourishing. So I think productivity in the mm. workplace is part of the equation of having someone feel like their work is worthwhile and they're doing a good job. And that's actually part of well-being as well. Yeah, so we shouldn't be too cynical about this, right? Do people detect that? Like they actually think, oh, I think this is a good service. People care about me as a person to the extent that they want me to get this help. Yeah, we get really good feedback that all of the people, whether they're a consultant on site or whether it's someone that you talk to in a counselling room, the focus is really on the individual and making sure that we are meeting them where they want to be. And so we always try and listen really hard to that person and their individual needs. It's never something that we're sort of laying a, a company lens across and, and only doing what a company tells us. It's always about the individual. Now, our, our relationship with work is obviously a vital one, 
What are the kinds of issues that people would typically use a service like yours for? The number one is what you'd expect, stress, anxiety, low levels of depression. Normally it's not clinically uh, at an acute level, um, although occasionally, of course, we get people who are suicidal. And I'm really proud that every year we think that probably one to 200 people um, are still alive because of our service. And that's terrific and just an incredibly heartening thing. But at the same time, that's the, not the normal day to day because the, most of the people we come in contact with are holding down a job successfully. And so the levels of anxiety and stress and so on haven't reached the point where they need to be hospitalized or they're really acute. But then the other things that we often see people to talk about are relationships. Um, So we do a lot of relationship counselling and that's all part of um, the service um, as well as um, budgeting advice, quitting smoking, nutrition, uh, you name it, we love talking to people about it. Now, you have thought a lot about businesses and work practices over many years. I want to ask you, we hear the phrase work-life balance a lot. What do you think it means? I don't like work-life balance. I think Mm. that it implies that work is a different thing from life. And I think that Mm. if we're doing work right, it's a part of life. So I think that balance is important though. Um, I think that um, balance in all things is a great idea and making sure that everything we do is sustainable. So um, I prefer to think about, um, have we got uh, the right balance of all of the activities in our life, family, um, hobbies, community, church, the work that we do, um, socialising with friends and colleagues, all of these things need to be in balance uh, for us to have healthy and sustainable lives. And do some of the problems that emerge and people come end up, end up using your services for have some connection to not getting that balance right? I think often when balance isn't right, when things are out of balance, Um, then that's where we see problems emerge. And I think that uh, it's important that we don't think that um, work-life balance is only about the number of hours you do at work versus the number of hours you do elsewhere. In a really important way, work-life balance or, you know, making sure our lives are balanced is as much about how we choose to spend our time at work, um, how we choose to arrange our work life, um, whether or not we choose to socialise with our colleagues and make sure that we're um, making connections with our work colleagues versus working completely alone. That's actually a really important part of balance too. And that's not about hours or stress or anxiety. It's actually about the way we've constructed all of our life. Is the sort of service you provide and interest by companies and employers in this area, is that a relatively new thing historically? It's not particularly new. Um, EAPs, and that's one of the services we provide, have been around for 30 or 40 years in one form or another. And Converge International actually started doing workplace chaplaincy right back in the 1950s when Mm. returned servicemen from the Second World War and Korea were in the workplace, often with drug and alcohol problems. Um, That was being exhibited in some unhelpful and unhealthy ways. And so going into workplaces and trying to provide support right where people were uh, at that point was really important. So there's a long history of this and it's evolved over time, but certainly it's been around for quite a while. Now, the pandemic has led to a lot more working from home um, in that situation at the moment. And that experience has been incredibly mixed, hasn't it, depending on people's circumstances. What have been the benefits and what have been the costs? 
We've done quite a lot of thinking and work on this. One of the big benefits for working from home has been that people have connected more with family. Um, and sometimes people say, I've seen what my kid's doing at school and really understand their day-to-day school life for the first time. Mm. Maybe, you know, not the easiest environment in which to discover that, but still they have seen a benefit from that. And simply mm. uh, reduced commute times have made a huge difference to people's yeah. um, days and how much time they have to spend with family. Of course, on the flip side, the opposite um, problem has been monotony. It's really difficult to maintain uh, a sense of creativity and freshness when the day looks exactly the same um, at all points, you know, from right from the very moment you wake up until the time you go to bed, you're in the same basic space and with the same people around you. So that monotony has been difficult through lockdown. I think what that teaches us is about working from home is that it's important to note what the problems are and figure out how to overcome them if we go to hybrid working arrangements in the future. The other really big two factors I think that we need to bear in mind is that workplaces in the future will need to be places that encourage social interaction, where social interaction is kind of the reason you go, because if that's not the reason you go, if you're sitting in your own office on a spreadsheet all day, you might as well have been at home and avoided the commute. But if you are, in fact, interacting with other people, even in casual corridor um, chat kind of ways, uh, that's just changed the, the shape of your day and enabled you to do something different. The other piece about um, the working from home hybrid model that we really need to bear in mind um, is making sure that people have choice. So we know that autonomy is really important. So when people feel forced into it, and of course, lockdown was the classic example of this, Mm. all of the benefits of working from home potentially go out the window because people feel like they don't have choice. But choice is a, a very important part of making sure that stress from a situation uh, has not got out of control because people feel like they had choice about it and they can do things to change it if necessary. Now, well-being includes all sorts of things. There's physical well-being, mental well-being, of course. I want to ask you about spiritual well-being. I know you have pastoral care services and there's a faith element to that, right? This is an important part of our holistic kind of approach, isn't it? We have a model of what we call mental fitness, and that's the base level of how to stay well. And mental fitness, and there's really good evidence, we went to all the best journals in the world, mental fitness has four elements, mind, body, spirit, and community. And spirit's an absolutely essential part. You can't dismiss it, and you can't uh, imagine it's not there. It absolutely is there. Obviously, for people from particular faith backgrounds, spiritual care and the spiritual element in life has particular shapes. But what's clear from the evidence is it's important for every single person. So understanding how we're connected to nature, to the world around us, what the meaning and purpose of our lives is, why we're here, what we're doing, that's a really critical part for well-being for everyone. Um, And so, yes, we do provide pastoral care and we do provide spiritual care. We're about to launch a spiritual care helpline for people who specifically want to talk with someone where they can talk about the why. Why am I here? What am I doing? What is my purpose in life? Because we know that's a really important part of well-being. So you've obviously given this some attention. Do you think that we don't pay enough attention to that side of our lives, the spiritual side of it? I think people do pay quite a lot of attention to spiritual care and to the spiritual part of their lives. I think in Australian society, or at least in the Australian 
um, public square, the, the things we talk about as a society, we downplay it immensely. And we downplay it, I think, to our collective detriment. Mm -hmm. I think it is an important thing to think about. It is an important part of our lives that we need to be taking care of and being explicit about how am I caring for the spiritual part of me? Um, or rather, how is the spiritual part of me being integrated into all of my life? And I think many individuals actually do do that. Um, I know many people, secular as well as religious, who think quite deeply about that spiritual part of themselves, but it doesn't form much of the dialogue in Australian culture. For Daniel C as well, our wrestle with work and productivity and time management is a spiritual issue. And he's discovered that from personal experience. So like a number of years ago, I was wrestling again with a lack of space in my life and I'd done all the right things, I had all the right patterns and I was really frustrated because I'm a productivity consultant, I help other people solve these issues and I just had this real sense that the way in which I organize my time isn't just a structural issue, it is actually a spiritual issue like everything in life. And that would be the solution. And I was reading this Older Testament scripture about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And for those who don't know the story, you have Elijah who has a showdown with a bunch of other priests of a different god called Baal. And the one whose altar spontaneously lit on fire was you know, the winner, I suppose. Their god was the real god. And it has nothing to do with time management. But as often happens when I read scripture, sometimes something random stands out and it's my hut moment. And as I read it, what I realized is that Elijah poured out an enormous amount of water onto his altar. And the strange thing is that it was the middle of a drought. In fact, the whole reason the showdown occurred is because there was no water in the land and people were starving and there was no food. And so in this situation, I always thought that the pouring of the water just made it more miraculous when God spontaneously lit the altar. But what I realized is that Elijah poured out what he did not have uh, and it must have been a huge act of faith to do that. And immediately I just thought, actually, that's what I meant to do. My solution <laughs> is, I suppose, in faith uh, and and love of God to pour out what I don't have. And that's time. I had no time. And to give my time first to God as an act of, of love. And that's what I did. So Monday morning, I didn't open my inbox. I went for a walk down the path and up the mountain near me. Uh, with a thermos of you know, ginger tea or coffee. And I just sat and I wrote in my diary and I was just still. And I did it until one o'clock every Monday for over a year. And the complete opposite of what I expected to happen happened. Rather than run out of time, I actually found that I had time. My calendar stabilized, my inbox got to zero. And I don't know, it just worked. And I cannot even explain why from a productivity perspective. But what I've realized was two things. One is that time is a spiritual issue. Uh, productivity is an upside down kingdom type thing is what we might say uh, for those who are apprentices of Jesus. And and the way in which we understand time isn't just a human thing. There's something about trusting uh, God with our time that allows us to make space. And the other thing for me is that my wrestle with space and busyness, I realized that that's actually not a bad thing. And I stopped resisting it because I realized that when I wrestle with time, when I wrestle with busyness, I actually am confronted with my own values and my own beliefs. I'm confronted with my habits. 
um, confronted with myself. And that's what builds my character. And I'm the person I am today because of that wrestle, and so I'm grateful for it, rather than simply being unhappy at how busy my life had been. This has been Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Our thanks today to Dr. Jenny George from Converge International and to Daniel C. Daniel's book is Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind and Think Clearly in the Digital Age. We hope you found this a helpful conversation. Perhaps you'd even like to give a new habit a try, like the daily or weekly pause Daniel talked about. And I'm sure we all know someone who's wrestling with these questions and who isn't. So why not share this episode with them as well? Next week. I don't think that there's that many actual true atheists out there, really. And most Australians have been raised in a religious background like me. It leaves leaves your mark on you. So even if you're not a mass-going or church-going person or synagogue going or whatever going person when you're an adult that kind of stuff still leaves a mark on you and I think still leaves you open to believing in things that you can't necessarily see like we don't actually know where we get our consciousness from either it's a mystery even in science so why wouldn't people be open to other mysteries